Well, if you would grab your Bibles and open to Psalm 1, Psalm 1. So if you open your Bibles to the middle, you'll get really close. If you're really good at middle, you're going to hit Isaiah, but if you get hit Isaiah, just go a little bit to the front, um, and you'll find the book of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, uh, often known as the, uh, the hymn book of the people of God or the prayer book of the people of God, songs that are sung and hymns that are uh, declared poems written to the glory of God. And so we're going to look at Psalm 1 today. As we continue in our journey, that's simply called the Scriptures. So we're about halfway through this series. Uh, it's a practice series on the Scriptures. So let me just uh, quickly kind of lay out for you. A practice series is uh, still teaching. So you're getting teaching uh, over the course of six weeks. But um, you're also being encouraged to step into uh, actual practice, uh, an engagement of uh, the, the Scriptures, of the practices that we're doing. And the reason we do that is because we believe very deeply that uh, more information doesn't change us, that information by itself is not transformational, but that we have the opportunity to have whole life transformation. And whole life transformation happens when we step into the things of God, the practices of Jesus, living the entirety of our lives, um, quorum Deo is the theological word, before the face of God, that we are constantly living before the face of God. And so we're invited into that, and one of the ways that we do that when we have a practice series is through uh, these practice guidebooks. And so if you didn't grab one of these yet, they were about out, but I think they were producing a few more, so you can grab one on your way out if you don't have one. You can also download a PDF copy on the website. That's also uh, perfectly fine. Those practice guides give you uh, some uh, both individual and communal exercises uh, meant to be practiced within community. So if you're not currently a part of a community group, this is a great time to step into that, to be able to practice those things in community, or just to call some other believers around you for this journey, to be able to intentionally journey through uh, the scriptures uh, during this time. You'll see uh, within the guidebook there are specific exercises to be done in community and other exercises to be done individually. So uh, let me just give you a brief recap of where we've been, because the first three weeks have kind of laid the groundwork for now these next three weeks as we uh, wrap up this series. So three weeks ago, we began by uh, giving you just kind of a broad overview, and as part of that broad overview, I tried to give you a definition for the scriptures. When we say the scriptures, what do we mean? And uh, this is the definition we landed on. The Bible is a library of literature that forms a unified story which points to Jesus. That uh, last part is tied, if you're familiar with the Bible Project and the guys of the Bible Project, uh, they talk about the Bible as a unified story that points to Jesus. We just added into that the idea that this is a library of literature because that's really important for us to get. We hold it in one book, and so because it's bound together, we tend to see it as a single book. But really, this is 66 different books written by different authors to different, uh, d different congregations or different uh, audiences in different times, different situations, in different genres of literature. And all of that's really important in the way that we interpret. And so it's a library of literature, but it forms a unified story that points to Jesus. And so um, the big thing that we tried to emphasize that first week in overview is that the Bible isn't intended to be read for information, but for formation. So the idea is that we wouldn't simply be informed, get new, uh, new details and be able to win at Bible trivia. I mean, that's all, that's all well and good, but that's not the goal. The goal is that we would be shaped by the word, that we'd be shaped under the word. And uh, the following week then, Scott stepped in and uh, did a great job talking about how Jesus was himself 
formed by the word. What we know as the Old Testament was the scripture that Jesus read. And uh, he, when he would challenge the religious authorities of his day, whether on the right or the left, that challenge was not that they didn't know the Bible, but that they weren't shaped by the scriptures. Jesus' life was formed by the scriptures. And what he would challenge them on is that you know the details of the word. You can win at Bible trivia, but you are not shaped. You're not formed. And Jesus himself formed by the scriptures. And then uh, last week, Lucinda did a great job stepping in and talking about story. Uh, The Bible, as we said, is a unified story, which points to Jesus. And story is one of the most powerful formational things within our lives. Uh, Story forms you whether you know it or not. You're formed by the story that you believe about the world around you, that you enter into. And the Bible presents to us not just a story, but a countercultural narrative, a, a, a narrative that pushes against the prevailing wisdom of the world around us. And so we have the opportunity as we study the scriptures to either enter into that countercultural story, to be shaped by it, or to hold it at arm's length, to not engage it personally in the transcendent word of God, to allow that to speak into our uh, lives, as Lucinda talked about. And so what we're going to do these last three weeks is basically answer the question, how do we enter into that story? What's it look like for us to enter into the story. And in order to do that, uh, this morning, I want to start by introducing you to a painting. This is a painting that uh, some of you are probably familiar with. Um, I stole it off the wall in Pastor Tim's office. Um, it, was, it was there this morning, but it's not there now. It'll be there sooner or later. It'll come back again. Um, this is a reproduction of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is actually quite a bit smaller than the original. The original, believe it or not, is eight feet tall and six feet wide. It's an incredible work of art. And um, I, I present it to you not so much to talk about all of the beautiful details of the painting, of which there are many, uh, and there are lots of different aspects of it that hold a lot of meaning, Um, And not even to tell you about the story of the prodigal son, which is a beautiful story. Uh, That moment that's represented in Rembrandt's painting could be a sermon series itself and uh, would be worth us engaging, but that's not where we're going today. Instead, I want to present this to you simply as a work of art. And with a work of art, there are layers to the beauty and to the meaning that Uh, unveil themselves to us over time. So some of you know the name Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nouwen was a professor, a brilliant man, a professor at first the Divinity School in Notre Dame, and then at Yale, and then at Harvard. So if we could just agree together, if you have Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard on your resume, you're probably pretty bright, right? Like he's a sharp guy. And while at Harvard, the call of God came to him to go to serve for the remainder of his life at a community called La Arche in Toronto. And that community was for developmentally and intellectually uh, disabled individuals that were uh, there at that community, and he was going to serve among them. And in between Harvard and La Arche, he had an opportunity to go with some friends to St. Peter, Petersburg, Russia, where this painting in its original form is on display. Uh, a couple years before that, while at Harvard, this painting had captured him in just a, a poster reproduction. He had seen it, and it just it grabbed a hold of him. When Nowen went to St. Petersburg, he spent, over the course of a couple days, more than four hours just sitting and staring at the painting. 
sitting and watching the light move through the room and reflect on it different ways, seeing the layers of the painting and the way the eyes were focused and the direction uh, that each character was uh, moving, all of the details that were being represented. Uh, He wrote about it in 140 pages of very dense and beautiful prose in a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son named after this painting. But what I want you to imagine is more than four hours of staring at one painting. Because Amanda and I, uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, were in several art galleries. We walked through art galleries. Neither one of us are art connoisseurs, per se, but we appreciate art. And so we would, we would walk through art galleries. We probably spent four hours in art galleries over the course of uh, a couple of days. And, and this is the way we handle art galleries. We walk by. Some art is the, this kind of response. Huh. That's, that's it. That's the, uh, huh. Some art is, ooh, some of that. And then every once in a while, there's art that's like, hey. And then we have a very brief conversation, 30 seconds to a minute, something like that. And we have a conversation, and then we move on. Now, that's some because we don't appreciate art, I'm sure, at the level that we should. Um, but some because I, I can't imagine four hours doing much of anything. Like, four hours is a really long time. But what Nowen found is that when he sat in front of this beautiful painting by Rembrandt over the course of four hours, more and more of the truth of what Rembrandt was trying to show unveiled itself to him. So maybe art's not your thing. Uh, Maybe for you, movies are your thing. So you uh, go again and again to see the same movie over and over. You go to see a Christopher Nolan film, and you watch it again and again because it takes a lot of time to understand a Christopher Nolan film, right? A few of you are with me. Most of you are like, I'm a Spielberg guy or Hitchcock maybe. I don't know. Whatever it is, that's totally fine. Um, So uh, just you watch it again and again and again, and you see the layers unfold. Or maybe it's nature. You, You go out to the same place, the same park, or the same overlook, And in different seasons and from different angles and on different days, you experience it in a different kind of way. And the the beauty of the world around you speaks to you in a different kind of way. Or maybe it's music. Uh, For for me, this week, there were two different projects released that are tied to artists that were really meaningful to me in my very formative years of faith. Uh, And they spoke to me in a variety of different ways. One was a a re-release of an album that was re-recorded by the original band. And it was just fascinating to listen to it um, with older voices and knowing a little bit of their stories and uh, listening to those lyrics again. And another one was an artist who passed away 25 years ago and uh, was being covered by a variety of different artists. And as I listened, I, I found myself listening not once or twice, but dozens of times this week and just hearing different things from music that I've known for years and decades. And I'm hearing different things within it. Art doesn't give itself to us right away. It takes time. And the Bible is like that. The Bible is intended for us to meditate on it to chew on it, to sit under it and allow the truth to come to us over a period of time, in fact, over a lifetime. And so I, I, I don't want you to take my word for that. I want you to listen to what the psalmist says. In Psalm chapter 1, there's that same declaration that the word of God is meant to be meditated on. And so Bill's going to come and he's going to uh, declare the psalms for us, uh, first in one translation and then in a second translation. And uh, however that's best for you to listen, if you want to follow along or if you just want to listen, uh, allow the word of God to speak to you as we consider the Bible as meditation literature. 
I wasn't anticipating having classic art as my backdrop. <laughs> Pastor Tim will never look at this painting the same way. <laughs> From Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. How well God must like you. <laughs> you don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't sleek along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's Word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. You're not at all like the wicked, who are mere windblown dust, without defense in court, unfit company for innocent people. God charts the road you take. But the road they take is skid row. Thanks, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we engage your word, we want to always do that on your terms. In your way. And so as we step into Psalm 1 today, into the entirety of the scriptures, would you help us to indeed see that these are unified stories that are pointing to you? But God, would you also help us to be formed and shaped, to allow the word to unveil itself to us, layer by layer by layer. Create in us a hunger, a desire for the word. God, would you guard the words that I will speak, that uh, the ones that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, that they would penetrate our hearts, and that we would be changed, that we would be shaped into your likeness, increasingly for your glory. And so do this work in us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. 
You may or may not know, uh, we have seven values as a church, and one of those values is simply stated as the foundation of the Word. We believe the Word is foundational for all that we do, which is why, whether it's me or someone else in the pulpit on a Sunday morning, we're always going to be preaching from the Word. You're not just getting ideas, you're getting the Scriptures as you come. Uh, The songs that we sing uh, and the uh, declarations that are made are coming out of Scripture. When we pray, we're very often praying the Word, praying based on the Word. Our children right now are being taught the Word, not just lessons, but they're being taught the Word, and that happens all the way up through our uh, middle school and high school and college and all the way through our community groups. We're grounded in the Scriptures. We love the Bible. But you also may know that the Bible is not extremely popular uh, in the world around us, and that's increasingly true. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't want to go into all of them, but um, one of them is that uh, the, the Bible is, has this really pesky habit of telling us what's right and wrong and uh, how we should act and how we shouldn't act and uh, the way that we should live and the way that we shouldn't live. And the, fr- the, the bottom line is most people don't really want to hear that. <laughs> uh, people are not overly interested in being told what to think and what is true and what isn't true. And so as we come to the scriptures, we're going to talk more about that next week, we need to be submitted to the scriptures. But one of the ways that we uh, kind of get in the way of that process is by approaching the Bible like it's a, a roadmap for life or a, a checklist for living. And, and the reason is the Bible itself doesn't give us that option. The scriptures come to us not in a way that lays out a checklist to say this is the way that you should live, but in a, a much more complex story written in different genres and different kinds of literature and different ways to different audiences so that we would mind the truth of it. When we approach the Bible as though it's a pamphlet for uh, science or politics or living in modern life, and believe me, the Bible has a lot to say about all of those things, but when we simplify it down to that, we get in the way of people being able to take seriously this piece of literature inspired by God for our formation. And I say that because Psalm 1 says that. Psalm 1 says to us that there's a way for us to engage the word that's not just a checklist, but rather a a, a way to deeply soak in the truth of the scriptures. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the psalm itself or just take a couple minutes to walk through particularly the first half of the psalm and get a sense of what it's saying. And then I want to give you an example of what that looks like. What's it look like for us to engage the word on its own terms? And then finally, give you a practice that you're going to be able to follow up on this week uh, to step into the Bible as meditation literature, that we would uh, begin to hear the truth of the Scripture unveiled to us over time. So let's dive in. If you're looking at Psalm 1, I want to start in verse 2, because verse 2 is kind of the key of that first half of the, uh, the psalm. It says, His delight is in the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. That word meditate is the Hebrew word haggah. Uh, if you uh, listen to our daily podcasts, we have a podcast Monday through Thursday, and there were several people who jumped in over the last couple of weeks while we were gone, so really thankful for them. They did a great job. But uh, Lucinda on Monday talked about that idea of uh, that word meditates. It's not a, uh, an often used word in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. It's used about 25 times in the Old Testament. 
13 of those 25, if, I'm, if my memory serves right, uh, are all in the Psalms, and uh, they're often translated in that kind of way, that idea of uh, meditates on or continues on, uh, that kind of idea. But there's one uh, place where Hagah shows up that kind of helps us to see the heart of the word, because meditate seems like a, a kind of a passive word, um, but the word is actually not passive at all. It's actually quite active. And, and that place is in Isaiah 31, verse 4. So if you write in your Bibles, I'd encourage you right beside the word meditates in verse 2, write Isaiah 31, 4. Isaiah 31, 4 says this, the, the, the lion, even the young lion, growls over its prey. Now, it depends on your translation. It may say growls, or it may, may, may say chews on, or lords over its prey. The, the image is of a lion that has attacked its prey, and now, having killed it and begun to eat it, it is it's, it's kind of standing over it, kind of growling with joy. You know, you get that sense of like down to the bone, just kind of gnawing on the bone. Um, we, we have two dogs. Um, one of them is a, a little doodle that has ADD, so if you need a dog, let me know. I'll be glad to send it your way. Um, <laughs> Kristen likes it. I'm not sure about the rest of you. Um, anyway, uh, so th- there's that one. Ignore that one for a moment. Uh, but there's another one, an older one, a dog named Hershey, um, that's part de- uh, Doberman, and is, it knows how to focus. So the ADD dog does not have to focus on anything. But uh, Hershey focuses, and especially if we're out in the woods walking and we find a shed from a, a deer, an antler, if you find an antler on the ground, you bring the antler back to Hershey, or any of you hunters, you're welcome to donate to us. I don't know how to shoot things, but you can, and you can bring it to me. That's great. Um, if you bring the antler to Hershey, he, it, like, it, it's doggy heaven, because I don't really believe, I'm sorry to those of you who did, I don't really believe in doggy heaven, but that's him. That's doggy heaven for him. If, if you need your dog in heaven, God will make your dog show up for you in heaven. It's okay. It's like, don't get tripped up. Um, but, but for him, he's so excited. Like he just, he sees the antler and he just, he'll, he'll grab it and he'll start on one side and then he'll move to the other side and then he'll take it to someplace else and he'll get over in the corner and he'll start to just gnaw and he'll gnaw and gnaw and gnaw and gnaw. And, and then if you call him away, he'll kind of put it back in the corner and then he'll go outside or he'll go eat or he'll go for a walk or whatever. And then when he comes back and he goes back over to the bone and he goes back over to the antler and starts chewing on the antler on one side or another. And he's trying to get out like every last morsel of flavor out of that antler. Like he just loves, he's after it. He's just, he's growling over it. Like, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. That's what the psalmist is saying. That we would haga on his law day and night. That we would growl over it. That we would chew on it. Peterson translates it that way. That we would, that we would grab hold of it and we would try to get out every last little piece. So, so with that insight, Now go to verse one. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what the psalmist is saying is the blessed person doesn't move toward sin, walking, doesn't pause at sin, standing, doesn't settle into sin, sitting, but rather hagaz, the word. And then he says in verse three, uh, again, three different things. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. 
So in, uh, in parallel, rather than uh, walking towards the wicked or standing with the wicked or sitting with the wicked, he's saying uh, those who meditate on the word, uh, those, uh, they're, they're uh, like a tree that's planted by water where it's constantly being refreshed. Uh, they're like a, a tree that's constantly bearing fruit in its season. It's, it's always fruitful and it never loses its leaves. It never looks like desolate like the world around us does more and more now, right? It doesn't lose leaves. Instead, it always looks vibrant and full of life. How? by meditating on the word. And that's not just reading the word. It's not just meaning, like, I, I had a Bible passage that I was supposed to read today, so I read the Bible passage. I read my verse of the day, or um, I read a section of scripture, or I read my three or four chapters in order to get through the Bible in a year, or whatever. I'm not opposed to that. We'll talk about that next week. Good. There's a good way to engage big swaths of scripture like that. But that's not what Psalm 1's saying. The Psalm 1 reader is encouraged to meditate, chew on, growl over the word, to, to grab hold of it and allow it to be turned over in our minds and in our hearts, not just once, but day and night throughout our lives. That just like a painting that you can stand in front of for four hours and it continues to show you more and more things, that, that the word of God doesn't ever stop telling us truth. We don't get to the end of it and be like, a, like the end of a novel you put over to the, the side and you grab another one. But the scriptures you come back to day and night, and as we chew on them, they continue to give us life. They continue to give us truth. More and more is unveiled to us. So what's that look like? Well, let me give you an example. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. If you've been around a while, you know we spend a decent amount of time in Genesis 1 to 3 because I believe Genesis 1 to 3 is really like a key that helps us to interpret lots and lots of Scripture. Most of Scripture can be seen through the lens of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We don't often get to Genesis chapter 4, but um, as you'll see, it's kind of the first instance of a story being interpreted through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. So I want to read it for you. Um, so if you listen best by reading along, I'm going to read it. You can read along. If you listen best just by listening, just listen. But I want you to envision this story in your head, like allow this story to take form in your head. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest, anyone, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, we're going to stop there. Um, as you just hear that, or as you would read through that, you can kind of get the picture of the passage, right? If it was, if it was your reading for the day, you would kind of be able to read through it, and you'd get a couple things. Um, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. They presented sacrifices. God liked Abel's better because God's not a vegetarian. He likes to eat meat. Uh, just kidding. That's a joke. You guys need to stick with me here. Come on. Come on. But God's not a vegetarian. Seriously. Um, so um, anyway, they, they present their sacrifices. That's not the reason why God liked one better than the other. Uh, the, the Abel presented first fruits. Cain just presented from his uh, abundance. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, but as that happened, Cain gets worked up. As Cain gets worked up, he's jealous first. His jealousy moves to anger, and then his anger moves to murder. He kills his brother, and then God comes to him, judges him, banishes him from that area, and tells him that the ground is no longer to produce for him. You, you would have gotten that, or something really close to that, if you had read that, right? It, it would make sense. But what's it mean to chew on the word, to meditate on the word in a different kind of way, to allow it to speak to us? Well, the Psalm 1 reader, I think, would have gotten a few more things, uh, would have at least begun to ask some questions. For instance, there, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's not represented in the story, right? Like there's big question marks. For instance, uh, did anybody else get taken by surprise that jealousy moved to anger, moved to murder that quickly? That's pretty fast. Like, you know, Cain went out, hanging out with Abel in the field. He decided to kill him. What? Like, where did that come from? Right? So you have that as a kind of a quick, like, whoa, that was a, that was a big surprise. Uh, you, you have this question that God poses to, uh, to, uh, to Cain right in the middle. Why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. So you see this this question posed to Cain, and the, the Psalm 1 reader will be thinking back to the question that was posed just one chapter ago to Adam and Eve, right? There was a, a possibility of doing one thing or another thing. They could do right or wrong. They could do good or evil. They made a choice. Cain now is presented with that same question, and the Psalm 1 reader would begin to ask the question, am I being presented with that same question? What does it look like for me to engage that question? And then there's a very specific word um, or wording at the end of uh, verse 7. Uh, it says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And the Psalm 1 reader would be able to go back to the beginning in the end of uh, Genesis chapter 1. When God created men and women, he said that we were to rule over creation using exactly the same language, actually. Uh, so there's this, uh, this call to rule, to have dominion over things. And the Psalm 1 reader would be asking the question, uh, what's it look like for me to have dominion over, to rule over uh, the negative emotions of my life, to, um, to be faced with temptation and rule over temptation. 
And, and that's just the beginning. There's the banishment of Cain, which is exactly the same as the banishment of Adam and Eve, right? They were sent out from the Garden of Eden. Uh, Cain is sent out from the land, and the Psalm 1 reader would begin to ask the question, uh, what's it look like to be sent out from the land? Why was that such a punishment? Why was his reaction so strong? And what's it look like for me to be separated from the things that are most important to me through my sinful behavior? Those kinds of questions begin to bubble up in our heart. And then there's this, uh, this technique that the scripture writers often use um, that you see right in the middle. So if you see in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then if you skip down to verse uh, 9, he says, where is Abel your brother? And then he says in verse 10, what have you done? Uh, four times he asks him questions. Can we just agree together that if God asks a question, it's not because he needs more information from us, right? So, so we can pretty quickly say questions are not because God is uh, short on information, uh, but they're instead being asked so that we would begin to think. And you would, uh, the Psalm 1 reader would go back to Genesis chapter 3 and remember the first question of God. You remember when God showed up in the garden to Adam, his very first question was, where are you? Because God thought he was lost? No, because it's followed up with the question, what have you done? The, the question begs the invitation of the reader to begin to engage. There's just a couple examples of what would be hundreds and hundreds of examples throughout the scriptures. If you go through the book of, just the book of Genesis, you're going to see things like uh, the rain coming down in judgment on the ark and fire raining down over judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to see things like uh, the call of Abram and uh, Abram uh, disowning his wife two different times in front of authority. And then you're going to see Isaac, his son, also disowning his wife. You think you're like rereading the same thing again. Like what in the world's going on here? As you get to the, uh, the great-grandson of Abraham, if I did that math right in my head really quickly, uh, you see Joseph. Joseph, fascinating. I stopped counting at around three dozen, but I think there are well more than that parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus' life. As you read the end of Genesis, you will see over and over and over again an insight into who Jesus was or who Jesus would be and what it means that he's uh, the Messiah who's come, the, the chosen son of God who's come on our behalf. Again and again, that's just the book of Genesis, and that's just a surface level. And that's just what I've gained over a couple decades of studying and meditating. There's a couple decades more, God willing, where I'm going to be meditating on more and getting more. And so are you. Because the beauty of the scripture is not that you would get it all first time around. And that's not, it's, it's not only not an appropriate expectation, it's a wrong view of the scripture. That you would be able to take the scripture and you would say, okay, I read Genesis 4, now I got it. No, you don't. Nor do I. Because every time as we come back to it, as we come back like, like a lion growling over its prey, more and more of the beauty of the word is coming out to us. So how do we do that? Because there's some of you who are saying, okay, I could read Genesis 4 15 times and I'm going to get three or four of those things. Like, there's just stuff I'm not going to get out of there. I, I never saw all those parallels between Joseph and Jesus and I don't know how many times I've studied Joseph, but I don't think I'm ever going to get that. And, and I would simply tell you, um, you, you don't have to tomorrow because you have the rest of your life. And if we see the word as Psalm 1 describes the word, 
then we are going to be people who come back again and again to slowly meditate on it, just like you would a great painting or a beautiful work of art where you would see more layers and more truth over time. So how do you do it? Is there a practice that would lead us into that? Well, there are several, but the one that we're going to step into this week is an ancient practice called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is uh, simply holy reading. It's a way of reading the scriptures that has been passed down for centuries that allows us to enter in slowly, methodically, meditatively into the scriptures. And the goal of Lectio Divina is simply that we would slow down, that we would meditate the goal is not read through the Bible in a year. You can't, spoiler alert, you can't meditate on the entire Bible over the course of a year. If the Bible is meditate, we're going to talk next week about wide swaths of Scripture and why that's important, and it is. It can be really, really good to read big chunks of Scripture like that, but it's not possible for you to meditate on the entire Bible over the course of a year. It's not going to get there. You, you could take a couple Psalms for the rest of this year, and that's it. And you can meditate on those, and you're going to get more and more out of them all the time. So how do you enter into it? Well, I want to walk you through a very brief practice. We don't have time to do the full practice this morning, but it's in the study guide, uh, in the practice guide. You're going to be able to engage it. I, I want to use Psalm 1 as a, an, an exercise, and I want to walk us through a kind of an abridged version of Lectio Divina. In your uh, practice guide, you're going to see a much more extended version that's going to give you just step by step. Really, really simple. What I want to show you this morning is simply that it's easy. This is not a difficult thing to do, but it does take time, and it does take intentionality. We have to be able to stop and be willing to, for a period of time, set everything else aside and allow our hearts to focus and so, if we were doing Lectio Divina for Psalm chapter 1, first thing I would ask you to do is put all of the distractions to the side. So if you have something that you're writing on, if you have an electronic device, if you have a phone or an iPad or a tablet, anything like that, just turn it off, put it over to the side, because the first thing that you would want to do is just clear the space. And then, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you into a time of silence. And that time of silence is really simple. The goal is that all of the noise that you bring in, whether that's stuff that's bouncing around in your head or it's me talking to you or whatever it is, that you just silence that for a minute and you allow yourself to be before the presence of God. And then I'm going to very slowly read Psalm 1 over you. And that, that move called Lectio, it's, little, it's literally just listening to the word. Um, and if you were doing it by yourself, I would encourage you to read it out loud, to speak those words out loud so that your ears hear them and your voice says them while your head is processing them. You're just going to read it out loud. And as you do, you're just going to ask God to show you, is there a word or a phrase or a section of that scripture that really jumps out to you? And it may make sense to you. It may not make sense to you. It doesn't matter. Is there one that really jumps out to you? If it does, you're just going to go back to that and you're just going to meditate on it. You're going to think about it. I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. And then you're going to read back through again. And as you read back through again, you're going to read slowly and you're going to listen to the entirety of it, but you're especially going to listen to that section that really jumped out to you. And you're just going to be listening for what the voice of the Spirit's saying. And then at the end of that time, you're going to take another time of meditation and you're just going to ask the question, what am I supposed to do with this? Where do I go from here? Now, that's the abridged version. There's a little bit more in your practice guide that you can uh, step into. But you're basically saying, I want to hear, 
want to process, and then I want to live it out. I want to start to live it into my life. And so we're going to practice it in a really simple way. So if you would just move all the stuff aside. Um, if closing your eyes helps you, that's great. Or if you just want to look, that's totally fine. And we're just going to take a moment of silence. And then we're going to walk through Psalm chapter 1. So silence your heart before the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And even as we do this as an exercise, we pray that you would speak to us because your word is alive and active. And the truth of Psalm 1 is truth for us. And so would you help us to hear? Pray in Jesus' name. As I read, I want to encourage you to listen, not just with your ears, but with your heart. Allow God to speak to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Just ask if there's a word or a phrase that's sticking out to you and why that might be. As you listen again, think specifically about any aspect of the psalm that really stuck out to you. and Think about what it's saying to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I simply ask the question, God, now what? As this aspect of this psalm sticks out to you, whatever that is, ask him, God, what do I do with it? How do I live that out in a different way this week?
And so Jesus, seal what is true to us. Now and as we go into this week, help us to step into what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. They're going to lead us as we respond. But um, as we do, let me just encourage you in a very specific way. Um, The application of a, a message like this is really, really simple. I want you to read and meditate on the scripture. That's it. So I, I, I want you to, even right now, consider where you're at and what it looks like for you to take a step forward. For some of you, meditating on the scripture in this way is a whole new thing, and you, you, just, like, you just need to do it once, which is great. Grab the practice guide, walk through it, and, uh, and step into it. For some of you, Electio Divina is not a new thing. You've done that before. And so maybe a couple times this week, you, you need to spend, take some time to set aside some time to really start to engage it. Uh, but what I would love for all of us to have is a very practical, this time, this day, in this way, I'm going to step into this practice this week. It's as simple as that. To say, like, before I leave this room, I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to step into meditation in this way, meditating on the scriptures. And and so as you do that, it may be that you would find it helpful to talk to somebody around you to say, here's my plan. Ask me about it next week. That would be great. Because then you have a little bit of accountability built in. You have somebody who can follow up with you and you can talk about what you experienced, what that was like. For some of you, maybe you need to respond in a more um, specific way to the Lord and not just to someone else. And that may be time for you to come up front to, uh, to commit before the Lord, to even repent before the Lord. And that's totally appropriate. You're always welcome to do that. On this side of the altar is a place where we would be, uh, love to be able to come and pray for you and pray with you. And on this side is a place where you can just kind of be on your own and you can uh, come before the Lord. But it's an opportunity for us to come before him and to, uh, to make that commitment before him. So I'm going to ask you to stand and let's respond to him in song and commit to him in the way that we're going to engage the word this week.